So if you had to make a list of the things that you were most excited about this past week, like in your family, uh, in your household, what would be on that list? I can tell you a few things that would be on the list in my household. Uh, thing number one, there is a new Chick-fil-A that opened up down the street in Crestwood. Every day I'm hearing about it. Kids are going there waiting in line for like three hours to get their food, you know, and, and all the workers don't know what they're doing yet, you know, so they're messing up the orders. They don't care. Everyone's talking about Chick-fil-A. They're super excited about it. Did you see that people camped out overnight before the Chick-fil-A opened? Because there was some thing where if you were like the first however many customers, you got free Chick-fil-A for a year? Yeah, I didn't do that. Uh, Everyone's excited about the new Chick-fil-A. Also, my kids are really excited about the new Disney Plus streaming app that's out. Disney Plus, you know, Dad's like, why do we need one more streaming thing? And then Dad finds out all the Marvel movies are on the Disney Plus (laughs) streaming service. And uh, so we're in. And I got to know my way around the new Disney Plus uh, this past week, too. So lots of excitement about Chick-fil-A, lots of excitement about Disney+. Plus. You can tell when people are really excited about something because they talk about it. You know, they're always going there. They're investing time and energy uh, in that. And my question for us today is, uh, how do we get excited about church? You know, if people were like, what are you really excited about? You know, like, how does it get to the point where we can truly say, I'm excited about church? And can you imagine the looks you would get if, you know, you told people at work tomorrow morning, you know what I'm really excited about? And they're like, what, Chick-fil-A? No, church. Like, can you imagine just saying that and then even really meaning it? Um, It's really hard today to be excited about church. There's a variety of reasons. Perhaps it's because of our background with the church. Perhaps it's because of uh, struggles that we're going through that are clamoring for our attention. Uh, Maybe it's because there's just so much disappointment there. As a whole, the evangelical church in the United States is on trial. I mean, there's just all of these things that are complicating our image of the church. But God wants us to be excited about the church. One of the ways he helps us to get there is he includes the book of Hebrews in the Bible. The book of Hebrews is written to people who aren't excited about the church anymore. People who aren't excited about the church. And it's a pastor writing a sermon to people who are feeling spiritually lethargic. They're not growing, even though they've been in a church for years. They're still struggling with the basic beliefs and behaviors that are outlined in the gospel. They're discouraged, and they're frankly tempted to walk away. The audience in the book of Hebrews would say it's becoming harder and harder to be a Christian in their daily life. And they needed reassurance that following Jesus is worth it. And I know there's a lot of people in this room who are like, amen, that's me. How did God know that that's what I need to hear? I want you to be excited about becoming a strong, healthy person of faith. And I want you to be excited about becoming in your home a strong, healthy family of faith. And then I want that to become something that leads you to be excited about building a strong, healthy community of faith in your church. And the book of Hebrews is going to help us see how to do that today. The sermon is called Striving for Strength, Peace, and Holiness. This is the way toward that. Let's pray and then we'll get into the word together. Father, thank you that you don't just include books of the Bible that are filled with theology 
or history or poetry. That Those are all great. But you, in, you include books of the Bible that are just aimed at encouraging people who are weary, uh, aimed at challenging them and warning them. And thank you that the book of Hebrews was written uh, by a pastor to a congregation, Lord, to lift up their spirits and lift up their eyes. And I pray that that's what it would accomplish in our hearts today. We invite you to help us to get fired up about the church and about our faith. And we pray this in your name. Amen. We're going to Hebrews 12, verse 12. Hebrews 12, verse 12. You can go ahead and turn there. And in Hebrews 12, 12, we are continuing on from something that I preached a few weeks ago. A few weeks ago, the sermon was about not growing weary when we're, when we're disciplined by the Lord, when we're corrected by the Lord. And uh, the series is, is called Distinctives of Anchor Church. And we're talking right now about our distinctive of walking with Christ. Our three W's are worship, walk, and work. And walking with Christ involves you and Jesus moving forward. We say that's the one foot of the walk. The other foot of the walk is you and the church together moving forward. You can't get far if you're only going forward alone. And you can't get far if you just show up for the parties and the potlucks. But your walk with Jesus is, is stationary. So you got to have both. you got to have both feet moving forward. And today we're continuing to look at the community foot. How can we move forward in faith together? And that's what this chapter is going to help us to discover. So here we are in chapter 12, verse 12. Here's what it says. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. So the first thing that it tells us is a word of encouragement and exhortation. You can jot this down, number one, strengthen your grip on the faith. Strengthen your grip on the faith. We're drawing a few images from the book of Hebrews, and here we see a person whose hands are drooping and their, their knees are weak, and um, earlier it, it talks about a person who needs to hold fast. So you put all that together and you've got someone who's holding on to, to an anchor that's up above in heaven, but their, their knees are weak and their, their arms are weary, and they're about to let go. They're about to let go. So the exhortation is to strengthen your grip. But we need to know what this image is, is actually pointing us toward. And what it's pointing us toward is not to just, you know, soldiers stand in attention and, and rally. It's not about you stiffening up. It's about your faith getting stronger. So strengthen your grip on the faith. I like these portraits that we are given um, when it says your drooping hands and your weak knees, it's just, it's just total fatigue, total exhaustion. And spiritually, maybe you're there. Maybe you're there where your grip is loose, your knees are wobbling, your arms are, are falling limp at your side, and you're so close and tempted to just let go, you know, to, just, to just give up, right? Um, I I ran a uh, Tough mutter obstacle race earlier this year with a few folks from our church. Here's a picture of us at the end of it. We're all muddy and exhausted uh, and filthy. And you know what they do? They give you all these obstacles that you, it took like three hours or something to go through this course, maybe longer. And so you're running, you're climbing, you're jumping, you're swimming, you're doing all these things. And then at the very end, you're just about to finish. And here's the last obstacle. It's this huge cargo net wall. You get up there, and I tell you what, your knees are weak, and your hands are drooping. And then you're climbing up this thing, and you're like, 
don't let go. Don't let go. I made it this far, and I don't want to fall back down. Now, this perfectly portrays spiritually where the people in the book of Hebrews were. They were like halfway up that net, and they're just like, I'm done. I'm just going to let go. And the book is meant to both encourage them, hey, look, you get up over the side, and you're going to cross the finish line. You're almost there. At the same time, if you let go, it's going to hurt. All right, it's going to hurt. You're not just going to float back down to the earth like a cloud. It's going to hurt. So strengthen your grip on the faith. Uh, the idea in Hebrews 10.23 of someone losing their grip on the faith challenges you. If you feel like loosening up and letting go to double down, to white knuckle, right? White knuckle. I love watching rodeo riders ride the bulls. Here's a rodeo rider. And uh, he has a grip on that rope. I mean... Imagine if he's just like, oh, I'm going to hold on a little looser. Right? I mean, he's going to fly off. And maybe this is where you're at right now in faith. Maybe you're like, I'm holding on. I'm good with God. Life is hard, but we're together, right? Or maybe this next picture is more like where you're at in faith. You're like, I'm holding on. I'm holding on barely. I'm about to fly off. You know, hey, I don't know where you are spiritually, but strengthen your grip. Strengthen your grip. It says, hey, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Strengthen your weak knees. This comes from Isaiah 35, verses 3 to 8. So the, again, it's a sermon, and the preacher's referencing his Bible. Listen to what it says in Isaiah 35, verse 3. Strengthen the weak hands, and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, any of those in here? Be strong! Fear not. All right, we'll turn to somebody next to you and say, be strong. And turn to somebody else and say, fear not. We're supposed to say it to each other. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong. Fear not. Why? Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. The passage was written to the people of God who were in exile. And God would come and get them back to their land. Maybe you need to know that. Maybe you need to know Listen, God's justice is coming. God's blessing is coming. God's answer is coming. Hold on. The question here is, what do we believe? What do we believe? It's tightening our grip on what we believe. So jot this down. Trust God's promises. Trust God's promises. The author of Hebrews is worried that the people were going to let go of what they had believed and what they had been promised, or he was worried that they had never fully grabbed on. And so where are you at with the truth of God's promises? Where are you at with what the, with what the Bible teaches? Where are you at with the teaching about Jesus Christ? It says in this chapter, see to it that no one misses the grace of God. So let me ask you this. The Bible makes a promise, many promises. It says in Romans 10, 9, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that he raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And ask yourself this, have you grabbed on for dear life to that promise? Are you a Christian? Are you saved? Do you think the only way and the truth and the life for you is Jesus Christ? If the people closest to you, your family or your friends were asked, hey, is that person a born-again follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, would there be any hesitation? Any? Are you a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, or have you just kind of had a finger on the rope? 
your whole life, you know, like little kind of loose, loose grip, never really fully grabbed it, but you're kind of touching it. And, and now your life is kind of a little scattered, and so you're like, well, maybe I, maybe I don't want it. You know, I do, I don't, I do, I don't. Like, are you, actually, are you actually clinging to the gospel for dear life? Is Jesus your Savior? Do you have an anchor in heaven? Maybe God is saying to you that you are not yet tied to Christ in a saving relationship. Maybe today is the day that you actually have to grab on fully and finally and be saved and say, I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for me, to take away my sins. I believe that he was buried and that he rose again on the third day, and I'm holding on to him for dear life. Maybe today's the day you need to nail that down. Are you trusting God's promises? It says in Romans 8, 28, for those who love God, all things work together for good. So are you saved but struggling with confidence? Are you struggling to apply the promises of God to your situation? Hey, for those who love God, all things work together for the good of those who love him. Are you clinging to that promise? In Philippians 1.6, it says, He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. Are the doubts loosening your grip, prying one finger at a time off that rope, or are you holding on to the promises of God? Trust God's promises. And then jot this down, trust God's warnings. Trust God's warnings. When you're tied to Christ and tempted to let go, there are warnings in the book of Hebrews. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And if you fall away, what hope is there? You're trampling again the Son of God underfoot. There are warnings against falling away that we have to be aware of. Maybe you're in the middle of a bad month or you're closing out a bad year. I don't know, but the Bible is challenging you to strengthen your grip on the faith, to trust God's promises, to trust God's warnings, and to know that He is coming through soon. Number one, strengthen your grip on the faith. Number two, jot this down, make straight paths. It says, and make straight paths for your feet, that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. In other words, if, you know, like if your arm is already drooping and then things can get worse and then boom, it's dislocated. You know, that's, that's a louder ow. And the Bible's like, look, if you're not careful, when you're weary, when you're weak, it's going to get much, much worse. And the idea of making straight paths for your feet here. Um, would be our, uh, our behavior. So the first point is all about strengthening your grip on what you believe. And the second point is all about strengthening the way that you're behaving. So when you're weak, you might be tempted to throw out the faith in what you believe, or you might be tempted to just get off the trail, to just get off the path, to just stop doing what you know God will uh, bless. So when it comes to making straight paths, this comes from Proverbs 4.25 to 27. The question for you is, are you spiritually disoriented and discouraged? Hey, don't compound the problem by getting off of the safe trail of God's word. I like the idea here of being tempted to go off-roading, right? Like there you are on the, on the pavement, and then suddenly you see a way out, you know, and, and it's like you go off-roading, you know, and, and you're bouncing, and it's crazy, and, you know, and then here's a picture of where you end up. This is a car that's just stuck in the mud. How did I get here? Uh, you stopped obeying what God has taught you to obey. Yeah, now you're miserable, and now you're stuck, and now you're going nowhere, and now you're 
And God doesn't want that for you. He doesn't want this season of discouragement to lead you off of the trail of, of his word. He wants you to continue to follow him even when life is hard. Now, there is a fear in the author of Hebrews that people will just get off the path and actually defect and they will leave the faith and they'll just destroy their lives. But there's another fear and the other fear is that they just keep going in circles. They just keep like coming back to the beginning, coming back to the begin, the basics of, of behavior and they're not quite moving on to maturity. And he's, he sees that as a big problem too. Hey, you're not going anywhere. You're just going in circles and you're not moving on to maturity. You keep coming back to the go square and you're not getting anywhere and I love that thought, too, that maybe you're not tempted to, to, you know, to just totally plunge your life into darkness, but maybe you're just, like, not getting anywhere. You're just circling, 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 and that's a problem, too. You're stagnant. Uh, did you see the news story this week of the guy who ran into his house real quick, left his car running, and then got occupied with something in there? Um, and an hour later, a neighbor knocked on his door and said, um, your car is going in circles out front? I've been watching it for an hour, and he's like, what? And she's like, yeah, and your dog's driving it. What? Here's, here's a video. I'm not kidding. He left his dog in the car, and the dog put the car in gear, and for an hour, the car went in circles. And neighbors were watching this like, what is that guy doing? Oh, it's not a guy. It's a dog. <laughs> it's a dog. And then and it hit a mailbox, hit a garbage can. The police had to come out there, and they're like, the dog's driving in circles. <laughs> they finally ran up and somehow got into the car and saved the poor pup. Um, but that, that could be like a portrait of you spiritually. Like, you're, you're like just getting nowhere. You're just one big loop. You know, church, and then live the way I live, and then feel bad, and then church, and then and getting nowhere. Hey, that's not a straight path. That, that circular loop is not a straight path. Sin, repeat, sin, repent, repeat. Sin, repent, repeat. That's not a straight path. Make straight paths. So how do we behave? You're going to be tempted to break off the path. And there's a few different ways that you can do it. You can just defiantly, you know, break God's law. But there are other ways where we can be foolish. We can make some foolish choices that suddenly take us off of where God intended us to be. And so I think it is a valid question because often when we're in a trial and we're in a hard situation, we've got choices to make and we're not quite sure we know which way to go, right? And so let me talk for a moment about how we know God's will. Okay, I want to stay on the straight path, but I don't know what that means. Well, here's how you know you're following God's will. You can jot this down. The first point is follow biblical commands. So if the Bible says do, you obey immediately without delay, and continually without interruption. If the Bible says don't, then you refuse that without delay, and you repent of it immediately if you have indulged in it. So biblical commands are pretty easy. The Bible says do, do it. So don't commit adultery, black and white, right? Next, how do I know God's will? Apply biblical principles. So there are broad principles that apply when the decision is actually a little more complicated. This could be in areas where the Bible gives a vast array of direct advice, like when it comes to money, debt, investing, uh, giving generosity. The Bible has tons to say about that. So if you ask a question, you know, like, should I take this job or, or should we take this trip? 
or should we invest in this purchase? Um, it's not like, well, the Bible says it's black and white. It's, it's more like the Bible gives you all these principles that you have to wisely apply. It says a lot. One of the things that makes it hard is sometimes the Bible seems to give uh, conflicting advice. It'll say, do it in one place and don't do it in another, or do it in one time, don't do it in another. And this is where you have to really know your Bible and to know what it says about these challenging situations. So um, apply biblical principles. That's the next step. Jot this down. Invite godly wise advice. So you bring mature mentors into the conversation and you listen to what they say. You know, is there an expert in this area who can help you know best practices? You know, uh, if we're thinking of buying a house, you might say, okay, well, the Bible doesn't give you a black and white command, but it gives you plenty of wise investment principles. Um, and then, well, should we buy this house? Well, it's not like heaven's going to shine a light on it, you know, but you can invite, you can talk to a realtor, you can talk to somebody, and you can get the best advice on that. Oh, well, that's on a floodplain. It's going to cost you more money. Oh, yeah, you know, people keep rifling through that. We're not quite sure why, you know. You're getting wisdom. You're asking, you know, you're not just praying, Lord, give me a sign. You know, you're like, uh, realtor, give me wisdom, okay? You're inviting that. The Bible puts a high premium on people who get godly, wise advice. Uh, there could be a situation medically where you're like, I, I don't know the best treatment for this. And it, well, it's not like you're going to go into the book of Deuteronomy and be like, well, let me see what it says about skin disorders. You know, you're like, I mean, you're, you're really going to try and get the best medical advice for your situation because it could be so foggy, so cloudy, and you, you, know, you might not know the best thing to do, but look, have you searched the Bible? Do you know what the Bible says about that? And then have you invited expert advice so that you know you're making the wisest choice? You're getting wisdom um, in that area. This factors into emotional issues, too. If a friend comes to you and says, I'm really struggling with depression, I, you know, I can't get out of bed, I don't know what to do about that, you know, yeah, we're going to search the passages on trusting God with your heart, but we're also going to invite your friend, right? Well, I think you should go to the doctor and be honest and ask your doctor what he or she thinks about that. We're going to invite wisdom. We're going to get knowledge and information. That's what it means to be somebody who is uh, inviting godly, wise advice. And then last, factor in personal experiences. So you might have feelings or there might be circumstances that are tying into this or you might have fears or you know you've got dreams for the future or hurts from the past or personal convictions. The problem is when this is where you start and this is where you stay. And frankly, this is the way that the world tells you to make all of your decisions. Well, what, what do you feel like doing? Well, what is your heart telling you? Well, what does it mean for you to follow your course? This, this is the only step that the world will tell you about. And this is not the way that God's people make decisions. We start with biblical commands, we go on to biblical principles, we invite godly wise advice, and at the very end, we consult our feelings, our personal convictions. You know, so if somebody comes up to you, one of your kids, and they're like, I think God's calling me to be a movie star. I'm going to move to Hollywood. Uh, really? What, where, where are you getting this? I'm feeling it. Oh, all right, and I got an email that there's going to be auditions in town this weekend. It's a sign. No, it's not. <laughs> People have no clue how to make biblical decisions these days, and so I hope this pattern helps you. And is there a decision in your life right now or a complicated relationship where you really want to invite God to lead you, where you really want to invite others to help you? Um, hey, make straight paths that are undergirded by biblical decision-making uh, a process.
So number one, strengthen your grip on the faith. Lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees. Number two, make straight paths. It says, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. And then number three, jot this down, strive for peace. Strive for peace. So it says in verse 14, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it, many become defiled. So uh, that comes from Deuteronomy 29.18. And the idea of striving for peace together, the idea of striving to live at peace with everyone, both refers to you and the people in the world. So the, the Christians in the book of Hebrews were, gonna, were being persecuted. So, hey, strive for peace with everyone. That includes those people who are making your life difficult out there. But it also refers to us in the church. Hey, strive for peace. Uh, build a community of peace built on loving one another. Strive for peace. The call to be a peacemaker and not a warmonger is all over the Bible. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. They will be called sons of God. And the warning here against a root, a, a root of bitterness, the idea there is that there's this root, you know, that isn't really seen, growing, and there's discord, and then it springs up and defiles many. And in the book of Deuteronomy, there was big judgments because these people rose up and started dividing the, the community of faith, and God's punishment came, and people died. And so um, we have uh, yucca plants in the backyard, and a few years ago, they were invading our garden. And so I'm like, well, I'm going to dig these guys up. Have you ever dug up a yucca plant before? Here's a picture of a yucca plant. They look so nice, so innocent. They're just green. And when you start digging, here's what you find. This is a picture of the root of the yucca plant. And here's another picture because that was only part of it. Here's the whole root of the yucca plant that I had to dig up. And I, it took me an hour to get one of these plants up because that was holding the thing up above the surface. So this whole idea of a root of bitterness, that is my root of bitterness. <laughs> that. And the Bible says we've got to protect the church because there could be a root growing of bitterness that then springs up finally and creates, creates poison in the community that leads to great suffering and sickness and even death. So jot this down. Watch out for dividers. Watch out for dividers. In Deuteronomy, the fear was idolatry. The fear was also there were power struggles. You know, who are you, Moses, to lead us? And there was a challenge against the leaders God had uh, set in place. In the church, there can be dividers who rise up over issues of doctrine, meaning they, they bring new doctrines out and they start preaching false things in the church. There could also be power struggles over who's in charge or how decisions are made. Uh, there, there could also just be personal issues. You know, I don't like the way she talked to me. And then, and then factions form and then people are disagreeing and taking sides. But we have to watch out for dividers because they will poison the church. Poison the church. The idea of a, a poison fruit springing up um, really highlights how the church is a body. And you're not on your own. I'm not on my own. We're actually united in Christ. So if like dividers spring up from this section of the congregation, no offense, you know, let's say that you're the ones, you know, and they start sowing all this discord. It's like we're eating that fruit and suddenly we're getting sick and we're feeling unwell and we're, you know, and why? Why? Because there's poison fruit springing up over here and it affects the whole body, the whole body. So I don't know what I ate earlier this week, but I got sick. 
real sick. I won't share the details. I'll just tell you this. I couldn't even get up. You know, like I'm having hot flashes while I'm sitting in bed. And, I, you know, my body is throbbing. And I'm like, I don't know what I ate, but I ate something. That's what it feels like to be in a church that's going through conflict. That's what it feels like to be in a church when there's frustration and fighting. And that's why we all together have to strive for peace. How many of you would say that you've been in a church in the past that went through a season of conflict? Raise your hand up if you've been through that. Wow, that's more than one. Why is that? Churches can fight, am I right? Churches can fight. I know when I started going to church in college, I was a part of a little Christian assembly in Melrose Park, and there were legendary stories uh, in the history of this church, of, of church fights. There was a, one story was of a leader and a pastor who were squabbling over the electric bill. The electric bill's too high. They start fighting over that, arguing over that, protesting over that. Got to the point where the leader was like, you know, that light bulb uh, on the back porch of the church is on all night long. That's got to be costing us a fortune. And then at a church meeting, they are checking the power bill to find out how much that light bulb costs the church. And then there's other times where to save money, you know, they, they're turning the thermostat way down, so people are shivering in church, and then so somebody turns it back up, and then somebody turns it back down, and then the guy who doesn't want it to go up and wants to save money puts a screw right in it so no one can turn it up anymore. <laughs> Try it now. Just the strife, right? The strife. Um, conflict in that church boiled over so much that when big decisions were being made, there was a group of people who, before a big meeting, mailed out a whole packet about spiritual leadership being abusive with things highlighted for you. And I was like, oh dear, I was still a newer Christian. You know, so Lauren and I are reading through this packet like, what is this? And then we show up and oh my goodness, people were storming up to the mic in this meeting and, and they had brought pre-printed ballots with no votes on them that they were handing out. And I was like, what is this? <laughs> Churches can fight. We planted a church out of that church, and um, we had some big decisions to make as a newly launched church plant in the western suburbs of Chicago. One of the decisions we had to make is to get rid of the, hold on, hold on to your hearts now, get rid of the pews and replace them with chairs. I know, I know, it's going to take a few months for us to process this, but we had to vote on that. And so we uh, all got together, and we had some church meetings, and there was a woman who always sat in the front, her name was Velma. And Velma was a senior saint, and uh, she got up during that meeting. I'm like, oh boy, here we go again. <laughs> I'm like shuddering, and she goes, I like pews. She said, I don't like chairs. I don't like this vote. I'm going to vote against it. She said, but if you all vote to put chairs in this church, I'll sit in them. I'll come here, and I'll love my church. And I was like, Velma stayed in that church forever. She just passed away, I think, last year. What a peacemaker. I mean, how humble she was. She wasn't a warmonger. And I love seeing peacemakers in action. Throughout any given year, I get the chance of pastoring people, and they've got friendships that have erupted, or marriages that have exploded, or families that are in turmoil, and we'll work together. And I'll say, all right, well, sounds like this week, here's the way forward. And, and I've seen the people who have said, yep, and they've taken the path of peacemaking, and I've seen the people who've said, nope, and they have gone off to war. And, uh, hey, I don't know if you're there, but choose the path of peacemaking. Don't choose the path of becoming a bitter root. 
Um, Augustine said that resentment is like taking poison and hoping the other person dies. And I would just counsel you right now and strongly exhort you that if there is bitterness in your heart toward any other Christian, and you know it because when you see them or they come into the room, you flare up. And if there's bitterness that you are cherishing in your heart, the Bible right now is calling you to forgive. To forgive. How can we strive for strength, peace, and holiness? Well, strengthen your grip on the faith. Make straight paths for your feet. Three, strive for peace and watch out for dividers. And then number four, strive for holiness. Number four, strive for holiness. So it says here, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. These are good corresponding commands because if it was just about peace and there were sin issues, then we might be like, well, you know what? I know that person's off the rails, but we've got to love them. So let's just forget about what they've done and let's just be at peace, okay? Can't we just get along? Let's just hug it out, right? Well, no, there's also a a corresponding call to holiness. And it's a stern call because without which no one will see the Lord. Meaning if all we go for is grace and love, hey, we're just going to get along, but we don't talk about the underlying sins that led to the root of bitterness growing up, then we're actually not creating a healthy community. Uh, When it comes to holiness, holiness means to be set apart from sin and to be set apart for God. So that's the idea. It's separation from sin. In this world, you will be tempted to sin, but you have to have a decisive breakup with sin as a whole at some point in your life. When you're born, you're married to sin. You have an enduring love relationship with sin, and you have to have a very ugly public breakup with sin at some point in your life. All right, that's baptism. Baptism is where you get in the tank and you talk about your very ugly public breakup with sin. I've been a sinner my whole life. I've been married to sin, and it's over. It's over, right? The words of Taylor Swift, we are never, ever, ever getting back together, all right? And if your whole life you have never had a decisive, ugly, messy, public breakup with sin, then you're not a saved person. If nothing has ever changed fundamentally in your relationship to sin, you're not a saved person, right? So when did the breakup happen? When did Jesus uh, pull you out of the grips of that toxic relationship and make you his? When did he make you his? When did your marriage to the Son of God as the bride of Christ actually happen? The decisive break with sin also reflects a decisive commitment to Christ. So you're not married to sin anymore. You're not married to sin anymore. It says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. So let's use this word of defiled and this challenge of holiness to picture one more threat to the community. One of them is division, but this one is more like becoming defiled. So ceremonially, you could become defiled, which means you're not welcome in the presence of God. It could happen many ways in the Old Testament. Contact with the dead, or you're covered in blood, or you've eaten something you shouldn't, but you're defiled. All of that portrayed what it means to be spiritually defiled and unwelcome in God's presence. So if you are defiled, if you are filled with sin... Uh, then you're not holy. You're, you're not welcome in God's presence. 
Now, Christians, when we sin, remember what Jesus told his followers? Look, you who are clean, you, you don't need to be cleaned again. You just need your feet washed. He told it to Peter. So the idea that you've been washed of your sin, you know, you might get dirty and you've got to go and ask Jesus to apply that cleansing again, but it's not like you're getting saved again. That's already happened, okay? Those of you who haven't been saved, you're just filthy head to toe, and Christ has never fully cleaned you off. So striving for holiness means first getting saved and then being sanctified. Being sanctified means the daily rhythms of confession and inviting Jesus to cleanse you again. Uh, strive for holiness. Then we're given an example here of a guy who blew it as kind of a what not to do. It says in verse 16, See to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. So you have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob and Esau were twins, right? Esau was born uh, first. So he was entitled to the double portion of the father's blessing uh, and inheritance. That would entitle him to the land, the possessions, but there's also the promise. God promised that through Abraham, Isaac, uh, there would be a uh, nation coming into the world through which the Messiah would arrive. And it, it talks about this as if Esau uh, blew it as being the one through whom the Messiah would come, the child through whom the promise of God flowed. So instead, Jacob gave the patriarchs. Jacob was the great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus. Hey, that's a pretty big thing to blow. Am I right? Like, would you like the Messiah to come from your descendants? Yes. Yes. Well, instead, what if I offered you a Chick-fil-A lunch? Well, come to think of it, I actually am kind of hungry. Uh, I'm going to take the lunch. That's what Esau did. He took the lunch. And so he's a warning to us of a guy who was unholy. And, and a few of his traits were kind of featured here. It says, they mentioned sexually immoral. We're not told that he was sexually immoral in like a crass way, but he married two women who uh, were from a different nation, and, and that, uh, that reflected his rejection of his family and his co community of faith at that time. And, and it, the wives drove the parents crazy, and that just showed that he allowed himself sexually to be tempted to not honor what, uh, what blessed his parents. And then also, it says he sold his birthright for a single meal. Maybe you know that story, but Jacob was a swindler and a trickster. So he knew Esau was more of an impulsive guy. Esau was a man of the field. He'd go out, he'd hunt, he'd, you know, he'd come back, be exhausted, and Jacob was more of a homebody, and there he was. So Esau came back, right? And so do you remember the story? Jacob was just making lunch, and Esau's like, I'm going to die. And uh, Jacob's like, well, I'll give you some lunch if you give me your birthright. And Esau's like, deal. That's all it took. So Jacob took the birthright, and they remember the story when it was time for uh, Isaac to bless the boys. He told uh, Esau to go out to the field, make him lunch, and then mom got involved and dressed Jacob up like a little goat. And remember the whole story? He went in with fur on. Anyway, the dad was like, oh, is this Esau? So Jacob tricked the dad, and he stole the birthright, and then he got the blessing. And the whole idea of Esau losing his birthright because of a lunch and his blessing because his brother stole it from him, uh, that is a warning against you and me. And the warning is this, that God has such a tremendous family blessing for us that will endure forever and ever and ever. 
And if Satan is baiting you with some sin, like a sexual sin or a financial sin, or, oh, this, this could be it. This, hey, hey, you're going to get robbed. You're going to get robbed. Or maybe it's just, well, I'm hungry. Well, I'm tired. Well, I don't, you know, I could really go for the, these friends are, you know, it's more the carnal worldly things that are lulling you to sleep. Hey, you're going to get robbed. You're going to get robbed. And this is a stern warning to strive for holiness. The warning includes actively defying God and enjoying the thrills of sin and expecting others to mind their own business and stop judging me and you become deceptive and selfish and fallen and defeated. Or you just let the appetites of the body totally eclipse your birthright as a child of God. I need sleep. No more church. I need some peace and quiet. No more community. I... And um, this is the worldly person who isn't sinning flagrantly, but is consumed by the distractions and desires of the earth and the worries and cares of this life and the routines and the rhythms of dust, laundry, bills. This person places no active value on the things of God. A lifeless drifter, spiritually dead, led about by the eyes, the stomach, the friends, off to leisure, off to folly, off to futility, and off to fire forever. Look, you can get robbed. You can get robbed actively by throwing your life into sin. You can get robbed passively by falling asleep. But jot this down. Watch out for defilers. Watch out for defilers. Strive for holiness. And watch out for those who don't care much about the things of God. Maybe actively they're defiant. Maybe passively they're asleep. But watch out for those where Jesus is just no big deal, or actually not in any way that would transform their lives. And as we are striving for strength and peace and holiness, we are invited today to strengthen our grip on the faith, to make straight paths, to strive for peace, and to strive for holiness. Because this passage ends with a warning, I have to end with a warning, right? For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Listen, the consequences of your rejection of Christ are um, irreversible. Irreversible. And there is hope. There is hope now if you respond to what you've heard. But the warning here is that what Esau did was permanent. And even though he finally, with tears, wanted to undo it, he couldn't. Now, that can portray that some of the decisions you're making right now in life, while you're under the gun, if you, if you flop, if you go off to sin, if you leave the safe trail, look, God might not remove those consequences from your life, okay? So are you willing to sit in this mess for the next 40 years? Warning, he couldn't reverse it even though he asked with tears. But this is also a portrait of someone who refuses to place any value on the inheritance of faith. Maybe you're here today and you've never actually treasured Christ as your Savior and Lord and you've kept him at arm's length and kept a pinky on the rope but never fully grabbed it and you're just going in circles and you've never really crossed over into the family of faith. That's Esau. That's Esau. And listen, listen, I've got to warn you as a messenger of God that the day is coming when that opportunity is going to be taken from you forever. And you're going to be standing there with what amounts to uh, a bowl of soup when you could have had streets of gold. 
And listen, at that point, there will never, ever, ever be anything you can do about it again. So I hope you heed this strong and severe warning and that you get saved today while there's still time. Put down the bowl of soup and pick up heaven's abundance. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this encouraging and challenging passage in the word. Father, I just pray for those who are uh, born-again followers of the Lord Jesus Christ that they would just grab on for dear life again and again each day to the promises that you have made. No matter what their fears are telling them, no matter what others are saying, no matter, no matter what the future may hold, I just pray that you would help us to recommit ourselves to the only one who can anchor our souls for eternity. Father, I just pray that there would be some today who are recommitting their lives to Christ, to staying on the safe trail of God's word, to believing that all things work together for the good of those who love you. Lord, I pray that they would hold fast to the promises you have made. Pray that there are those here today, Lord, who are being tempted to drift or to defy you, to passively, silently, sluggishly fade or to actively, full throttle, thrust themselves in front of the train. And Lord, I just pray that you would call them back, that you would call them back to a pure and sincere devotion to Christ. And Lord, I know there are some here today who have never fully taken hold of the riches of Christ. They have never repented in a decisive manner. They've not gotten baptized. They have not had a public, ugly breakup with sin. They have not had their public commitment to Christ. Uh, Lord, maybe it's time. Maybe you are calling them unto salvation. Maybe right now they need to pray in their own hearts. Forgive me, Father. Save me, Jesus. I don't know what it is that holds them in place. Maybe it is a, a reckless, sinful pattern of life and they don't want to let go of the thrills. Or maybe it's just passivity. The stomach, the eyes. Lord, maybe they need to let go of lacking love for you. I pray, Lord, that there would be some who would be getting saved right now, that they would be taking hold of eternal life and the treasure and the riches of Christ, that they'd be repenting of sin, committing themselves to Christ for eternity. Thank you, Father, for this message. Thank you for your word. Fill us with hope this week, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing together.